This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. This is UK Health Radio, and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show. What's this week's topic? Here's a clue. It's an unloved organ in the sense that we can't see it. It's not a, a quick win for a lot of us. We maybe are slightly embarrassed to talk about it. Well, it's our gut and what's in it and how it, what's in it can affect all kinds of our health issues. We hear from presenter Amanda Hamilton and also from Dr. Stephen Robinson, who really is at the sharp end of research on how our microbiota can affect many, many aspects of our life. In particular, his research is on cancer and how our gut might influence that disease. We became interested in how the microbiota might regulate how cancer grows. So most of the studies we've been doing um, have been focusing around how changes in the microbiota might affect um, how we've been focusing on breast cancer, but how breast cancer might develop or how it might progress in an individual. It is absolutely fascinating. And the research that's currently happening excites me enormously. And I help you as well. Daddy. It's a while ago now, but I very much enjoyed my chat with Amanda Hamilton. She's a very experienced presenter on topics of nutrition. And I started off by uh, admitting that my knowledge on guts and gut health was pretty much non-existent. So I, I just asked for a very simple introduction. Okay, well, let me give you a, a kind of gut 101 then so we've all got one um when we're talking about gut we're often talking about this thing called the microbiome which is a collective name given to all the bacteria sometimes called microbiota that reside principally in the gut not solely but principally in the gut and just to give you a bit of perspective um, the microbes or the bacteria in your body outnumber your cells 10 to 1 so that should be a bit of an indication as to how important they are and the gut isn't just about digestion or going to the toilet, which is what we kind of a lot of us would think. Back in the day, way back in the day, Hippocrates, the founding father of modern medicine, talked about the fact that the gut is the root of all disease. And science seems to be saying exactly the same thing. Um, the gut is really important for your immune system, for your mood, for your weight, for controlling inflammation, uh, for managing disease risk. It is hugely important these microbes are very much like a kind of frontline army think about them like that you know well, i must admit when i first think of gut health i think of the classic you know suffering from constipation or diarrhea or indigestion these kind of things yeah but it's a natural it's, it's a natural thought of, um potentially a lot more than just having been uncomfortable and suffering from those things is what you're saying absolutely and i think because um it's an unloved organ in the sense that we can't see it it's not a, a quick win for a lot of us we maybe are slightly embarrassed to talk about it but yes certainly it's not just about those sort of ibs or uncomfortable digestion um digestive type symptoms it's much yeah. wider than that in terms of the impact uh yeah, so i guess you know yeah, indeed. Very important. Um, well, a healthy gut is one that you probably don't need to think about too much. It just does a job. Um, and your wider health uh, symptoms or health outcomes are also good. So it's not just about having good digestion, like going to the toilet every day and, and having no bloating and, and kind of 
all that being easy and something you don't need to worry about, but other things being in um in good health too, because as I said, it basically impacts on everything. When it comes to how to support our gut, well, nutritionally, obviously that's my my focus. Um, what we need is a natural diet. Not surprising. So we've uh, evolved there's, over. There's a lot of talk about fermented foods. Yeah. Uh, I, I, so I did a little bit of googling, and things like sauerkraut seem to pop up quite a lot. Is that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think working, if we were to imagine it like a pyramid, the base of the pyramid needs to be um, regular natural foods, uh, the least processed food, the better. So that gives our fiber and, and means that our gut's not having to kind of deal with things that may be more difficult to digest. And we're certainly not evolved to digest a lot of processed food. And then working up that that pyramid, things like fermented foods, which is where the foods themselves can deliver some uh, what we'd call probiotic benefits, so beneficial bacteria within the food itself. And fermenting is something that humans have done for an awful long time. And just rewind a little bit. It's probiotic. What's that? So it means uh, delivering beneficial bacteria. So there's actually beneficial bacteria contained in something like fermented cabbage, um, or um, fermented milk like kefir. These are, are products that are are consumed um, lots of places in the world, not just here in the UK. But there, there's a lot of attention on them now because we know that they um, have some of this this benefit. But I've, I, I've got a favourite thing I like to ingest, which is fermented. I guess I'm assuming that's not on the list. But that's beer. <laughs> it's definitely not on the list, I'm afraid. Uh, too much sugar in there. Um, and alcohol causes a whole host of other issues. So, no, it wouldn't be... Nice try. Nice try. A lot of people try that one. Yeah. And also, I came across something else, which is kind of hard to do anything about in later life. And uh, a suggestion that if you're breastfed as a baby, your gut health might be better. Well, yes, the evidence is that the first 1,000 days of your life um, are when a lot of the microbiome, so this collective name for the benefic- the, the bacteria in your gut, is kind of set up, if you like. Um, and yes, having a, a natural birth and, and being breastfed definitely gives you an advantage there, as does not having to had not having um, much in the way of antibiotics, uh, which are miraculous medicine, but um, unfortunately do have an impact on gut health. But as an adult, clearly you can't do anything about it. We can't do anything about it. Any time of our life, what happens, happens. Um, but I think what I like to focus on is what I call the fridge staples. So getting the basics right, because yes, absolutely, go out and eat sauerkraut, go and enjoy it. Um, but what we need is the daily habits to be if to be right. Sauerkraut, did you just say that? <laughs> if you do enjoy it, some people do. It's, I'm not, but I listen. I'm, I'm not going to start pushing um, fermented cabbage down people's throats. What I would, what I would like to say is. Um, Getting the fridge staples right, as I said, is, is kind of important. And I think one of the areas that's worth highlighting is cow's milk is, is, um, can, be a pro- can be problematic. That's down to a number of factors. Uh, cow's milk allergy, which is commonly, could be up to 20 different things actually within a cow's milk allergy. Um, but casein being the common thing, so the milk protein being the, the problem, or lactose being the problem. And moving from cow's to goat's milk means that those two things those two issues are um, significantly reduced. So there's big right. digestive I, I, advantages use, going to that. We goat's milk in Do our you? family. My, my little boy gets eczema sometimes. So we, we try and allay that with, with, with cow's milk. But I've never really thought about it being better for the gut. I mean, how can that be? Is, is it less pasteurized or something than, than, than is goat's 
No, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing like that. Um, but I've done exactly the same in my family. My my daughter um, got eczema almost instantly when she started drinking cow's milk, and I switched to goat's milk, and it went away. Um, that's down to usually a cow's milk allergy that she would grow out of or he would grow out of. But it certainly um, shows you the strength of of the switch, if you like. If someone is lactose sensitive or lactose intolerant, um, there is less of an issue drinking goat's milk. But also the flat, the fat globules within goat's milk are also easier to digest. And here's another word for you. It is contains prebiotics. So we talked about probiotics, but prebiotics are like, think about it like a, a fertilizer for the good bacteria. The gut is often um, referred to as a kind of gut garden in my world because you have to kind of tend to it in lots of different ways. Um, so when you're delivering um, specific fiber types into the gut, it's almost like giving them the best food possible to then thrive, the good bacteria to thrive. So some of the okay. easiest ways to think about it is like you've got this kind of garden with all this diversity and we need to keep um, the, the bad stuff down and the good stuff up. We all know that the you know the soil, the terrain is really important there, but also fertilizer helps, and that's what um, right, these I, can, I, can, I can imagine that. Is, is there any actually published research that says that potentially goat's milk is better than cow's milk or this kind of oh, thing gosh. in your gut? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There is tons of research out there, and goat milk, of course, is the well, not of course. You might be surprised to know is actually the most commonly drunk milk. Um, in the world so it's not a fad in any way but yes I mean if you want to dig into the research the the St Helens uh, farm website would be your best place to get that or you, somebody can contact me if they want Amanda Nourish on Instagram or amandahamilton.com um, there's there's a great amount of research on this I, well I certainly would I, I, I'd like to put uh, some links on my blog to the research about that if, uh, okay. if possible for yes. sure um, because I, mean, I think it's good to do that if people want to find out a bit more. And actually, I'd like to have a dig around in the research as well. It's, it's said, really I, I interesting, yeah. Um, and I think that'll be a good thing to do, for sure. Right, we'll send you, I'll send you the, uh, the kind of compendium of, of all the research that's pulled together recently. Um, and, you know, I, I don't speak up out about anything unless the research is really solid. Um, and I've obviously had my own direct links with this, having moved my daughter from one milk to another milk. And I think that there's a there's a jump towards plant based milks, which you know is all well and good, but it's not the same. It's not the same as 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 what I'd call more of a food, which is the you know the calcium rich, B vitamin rich um, milk that we get from from a, a goat. So yeah, yeah, I think it's important. I mean, the jump to other sorts of milk substitutes could be like the, a vegan thing. Exactly. Right? You know, making that go forward a bit, I would suggest. Exactly, and I think. Um, Whilst a vegan diet can be really healthy, there are some missing bits, uh, B12 being kind of a critical one. But also um, when it comes to, you know, being a parent, I think about calcium. Uh, when your, your children are growing, the only way you can grow as an adult is out of the way. <laughs> uh, whereas actually, and also in, in you know, postmenopausal women, things like that, or the elderly, we do need to manage our skeletons really well. So um, definitely don't, do not discount um, the milks that are maybe more traditional and widely used elsewhere in the world. Um, it's, it's something to really think about. But yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll send you the research. I think it's... Uh, I know you're a bit yeah. short of time, but be before you finish, could you just maybe give us, if, if people are listening and think, yeah, I'd like to find out a bit more about gut health, kind of a go-to website or a go-to place. 
I would go to the uh, St. Helens Farm website for the information related to, to goat milk. And um, the best place I can probably say is, because I, I can't think of a one single place, there's a gut health project, which you might want to Google, but you can say, get in touch with me and I'll send people what they need to know. Okay, perfect. Great. Amanda, thank Th you. Thank you much so much. Because I think people really will find that interesting and hopefully useful. So thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Daddy. I enjoyed speaking with Amanda a lot. Uh, she spoke about some additional info she would send to me. And I, I've, I've got that and I've gone through it. And I will actually put it on my blog if I can, which is on my website, relaxbackuk.com. Now, that additional information is a report called The Benefits of Consuming Goat's Milk, written by a couple of people, with the lead being Charlotte Harden. And she is part of the Centre for Food innovation academic group at Sheffield Hallam University and also the molecular gastroenterology research group at the University of Sheffield. Now, I can't tell actually if, if it's published in a peer-reviewed journal. I don't think it is but I, I, I'm not sure uh, and the report does actually refer to a lot of published papers and in the conclusion there's a, a section which I'll, I'll just read out Goats differ from cows in terms of their anatomy, physiology, and product biochemistry. These differences support the contention that goat's milk offers many unique qualities for human nutrition. However, the authors recommend a comprehensive scientific study to fully examine the hypoallergenic and therapeutic significance of goat's milk. So I do feel that the report sent to me by, my, by Amanda has been rather sort of over- interpreted as, as far as some of the benefits of goat's milk that she mentioned. Having said that, I drink goat's milk and uh, so do my family, but I don't think we can say that there's real hard evidence for it being better than cow's milk. Although, you know, anecdotally, you know, such examples may exist. And as I said, indeed, me and my family drink it. Shortly, we'll hear from uh, a scientist who doesn't deal in anecdotes. He deals in hard science. This is Dr. Stephen Robinson, and we'll hear about some of the research that is happening on the subject of guts and gut health. recently lucky enough to visit Dr Stephen Robinson at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich and he is very excited about how his research can potentially be very applicable to helping people with all kinds of health issues. He specifically looks at the possible connections between the gut biome and cancer, specifically breast cancer, and I started my visit with him by walking uh, around the labs and having a, having a look at some of the facilities they have. Right, I'm having a, a visit to the Quadrum Institute in Norwich and I'm being shown around by Dr Stephen Robinson and I've got my lab coat on which very smartly says Quadrum Institute on, little badge on it, and I'm being shown around and they, we're outside a door which says Experimental Kitchen. So what's that about? So one of the things that we do at the Quadrum Institute 
not me necessarily, but some of the other scientists study uh, food pathogens, so microbes that might be in our food, um, and or how do the chemicals and uh, things in the food that we eat, how do they affect the microbes in our gut. So we actually have a kitchen where uh, some of the researchers will like go to the supermarket and buy things and bring them into the laboratory and then prep them the way you would prep them and then study how it affects uh, the microbes that might be present in the food products or how different uh, components of the food that we eat might be affected by the okay. way we prep them. So this simulates how you and I might cook at home. Yes. I have to say it looks a lot tidier in my kitchen at home. Yeah, well mine too. <laughs> But I, I, I get the idea. No, that's because yeah, there's no point testing stuff that isn't realistic. So yeah, absolutely. There you go. And All that's, right. That's the kind of point of it. Lovely. All right. So onwards. Everything in there is kind of. Uh, it's it's funny because they actually have knives in there, right? So they can prep food, mm -hmm. but they have to be under secondary containment so that <laughs> people can't use them to do uh, naughty things with. I guess. Like make their lunch. Yeah, make their lunch. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Right now we've we've come into we've the kind of what the main lab. Uh, where most of the science is done. It's an open plan laboratory, which is really nice. Uh, the nice thing about the institute is it brings together all of the researchers, scientists, bioinformaticians, uh, data crunchers into one building so that we can do the things that we need to do. And the open plan is basically designed to facilitate interactions between the different uh, elements of those things that I just discussed. So right. We talk to each other. We know what each other are doing. That and that's important. You've got to yeah, know what each other's doing absolutely. for collaborations and the yeah. advancement of knowledge. And so let me just dis describe this lab a little bit. It looks exactly how you think <laughs> a lab should yeah, look. It does. It's kind of stuff with equipment that looks expensive. Yeah, um, a lot of it is. Yeah, the thing. Okay, so the thing nearest me is a centrifuge. Yeah, I've heard of that. I know what that does. Um, yeah. What else have we got nearby? Let's just have We've a look got at some. Microscopes. Okay, let's have a stroll down this. We have computers. We have microscopes. We have centrifuges. We have water baths. Everything's quite expensive, as you might imagine. Most science is quite expensive to conduct. Uh, these little instruments are what you call the pipettes which we use to move small volumes. Each one of those costs about 200 pounds, basically. All right, and there's a rack of a dozen there. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, a thousand pounds or at least. Science is expensive, isn't it? Absolutely. However, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm glad it's happening. Yeah, me too. A, it employs me. <laughs> well, it employs you, but also, it's, you know, it's important. <laughs> yeah. So this little room on the side is where we work with, uh, it's, we call it our tissue culture facility. So inside here, so we've got a, an extra layer of security. There's people now. All right. So we're supposed to change our lab coats when we come in here. We, we just won't touch anything. These are two of my PhD students, Kate and Allie. Uh, Kate's nearly finished. Allie is uh, in the first year of his PhD. So he's about six, seven months in, something like that. All right. Yeah, just passed his probationary review. So oh, well he's, done. Well he's done. He's allowed to continue to be a PhD student. So these guys are working in a hood, which, is, well, can you describe what that is? Yeah, so this is a laminar. It's actually both a biosafety cabinet and a laminar flow cabinet at the same time. So that means uh, essentially it's a semi sterile environment. So things in the uh, environment, we, the things that we're doing in there, we need to keep sterile. 
so uh, bacteria and things that are just naturally in the air won't go in but also if they're if they're not working with anything dangerous at the moment but if anything in there is dangerous it won't get transmitted in the opposite direction either. okay so it goes up these tubes in the ceiling yeah. and and then is dealt it goes with through yeah it goes through special filters that will capture anything that might be dangerous and then the rest of the air goes into the environment after everything is as dangerous is captured Excellent. So there's HEPA filters in there that catch any uh, small particulates or if there were bacteria in it or whatever, it would catch those. All right. Well, we better leave these guys to get on with their work and continue having a nose around the lab. Thank you. Right, we're looking into another room now, which has um, machines that they're a little bit like the hoods we just saw, but slightly different. So, Stephen, can you explain how they're yeah, different so and why? Are, these are uh, hoods where we can control the environment inside. So in this case, they're pumping out any oxygen from them so that there's really low oxygen concentrations inside the hood. And the reason they do that is because, we're, I mean, we're at an institute that studies microbes. And a lot of the microbes that we would naturally find in our gut aren't exposed to normal oxygen levels. They're called anaerobic bacteria. So they wouldn't grow in a natural environment. So they'll only grow in an environment where we can control the oxygen levels. Okay, so that's, that's why it's, yeah. it, it's like this. And I can see it actually looks quite, quite difficult to it use. It looks fiddly, it's yeah. very fiddly. But the gentleman there has got his hands inside this thing after going through some gloves yeah. to think keep a, think the oxygen Think of it as out. like a, a boy in a bubble kind of thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, so you're working in the bubble. You're on the outside yeah. of the bubble, but you're working in the bubble. Yeah. All right, excellent. Right, we're, we're now at the part of the lab. Uh, the, there's a, a couple of rows of benches here that which are uh, looked after by Dr. Robinson. This is his, his team. So tell me, what happens here? Well, there's no one here at the second. <laughs> a lot of people, as you just saw, some people are in the tissue culture room. Some people are out in the lab. Uh, uh, sorry, out in the offices doing uh, computer work and that kind of thing. Got a couple of people on holiday at the moment. But this is where we do the science that we do. This is the engine room. This, this is, is where it all happens. Room, yeah. um, and I guess with respect to the institute, uh, who, whose emphasis is really on figuring out how the bugs in our guts affect our health and affect how we respond to diseases and or develop diseases, we're interested in two things in particular. We're interested in how the bacteria that inhabit, inhabit our guts affect how we respond to cancer, uh, which is kind of the reason I wanted to come to the Institute, so we could study that with access to all of the researchers and facilities that we needed. But we also are quite interested in how the, guts, the, the bugs in our guts affect um, how our vascular system, our, our blood vessels, etc., how they function. Right. Both normally and also how if changes in our gut mind affects how we develop things like cardiovascular disease. And that, that could be related attacks, to all strokes. sorts of yeah, different absolutely. diseases. Even oh, yeah, treatment of cancer as well, maybe. Absolutely. absolutely. After the lab tour, I sat down to speak a little bit more with Dr. Robinson, and he started off by explaining the different areas of research at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich. So they're funding uh, three core areas of research. Um, were broken into themes uh, within the institute. One is uh, gut microbes and health. So how do the bacteria in our guts affect our health? That's actually the theme that I belong to. 
there's microbes in the food chain, so how do uh, potential bacteria, et cetera, that might be in our food affect us? How can we control, you know, pathogenic bacteria that might be present in our food? And then the other theme is looking at how do things that are in our, in our food uh, affect our microbiota? Okay. All right. So those those three things come yeah. together to make a very nice whole. So, so how long have scientists people thought that gut bacteria might actually affect our health i guess i can't put an actual day on it but it's been something that's rumbling along for a few years now maybe you know really hot topic over the last five to ten sort of years and becoming really hot now i mean i hear about it in the news all the time now you hear people are uh, attributing a lot of diseases to changes in what we call our microbiota so the bacteria Etc. The microorganisms that inhabit our guts. Okay. So, and I've heard a lot on the media about that too. But th- hearing things on the media and actual real evidence are very different. So, are we at the stage where there's real evidence now that it can def- can affect things like cancer, depression, immune function, allergies, these kind of things? Yes, I think we're at a stage now where we there's definitely a lot of correlative studies out there so many that we cannot we can't ignore it anymore we definitely are at a stage where we can say that the uh, bacteria in our guts are definitely affecting these different processes and as you said it's pretty much linked to everything now so depression cancer things like asthma um, the gut brain axis so not just depression but uh, mood um mental dis- uh, mental health that sort of thing okay right so all right our gut affects these things which comes into the big question what affects our gut then how how can we influence our gut to make ourselves better well it's affected by a lot of the things that we're exposed to so the important thing i think to remember about the microbiota is that it's composed of lots of different bacteria living in harmony with each other but also with us so us being the host so there's this really fine balance between the different types of bacterial species that are in the gut but also they are living in symbiosis with uh, the normal our normal cells present within the gut you know so the epithelial cells that take in the nutrients from your gut and that sort of thing and not just bacteria as well presumably oh yeah it's not just bacteria i mean we say bacteria most of the time because it's certainly the the biggest component of the microbiota but it's also things like uh, viruses um, fungus archaeobacteria those sorts of things right protozoa remembering back to my my biology gcse absolutely protozoa yeah absolutely and those minor components are ever more studied Really, I mean, we have people here now that are looking at things like viruses, certainly um, viruses that affect the bacteria can affect things like um, depression, uh, ME. There's a group here studying how viruses present in the microbiota affect uh, ME. Okay. So, I mean, is, is it out of our control or can we change it by changing our diet, by eating at different times, just having a different lifestyle? Definitely we can control it with the things that we eat. Um, sometimes that, that area of research is called prebiotics. 
So I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of probiotics. So uh, trying to change the balance of the bacteria in our gut by eating or, or drinking or administering healthy bacteria, things like lactobacillus, uh, bifidobacteria, those kinds of things. These are the kind of, we associate them with being like, you know, healthy bacteria present in our guts that do good things rather than bad things. And we can, can change the composition of the bacteria in our guts by changing the things that we eat. So prebiotics is an area of research where we're trying to feed the good bacteria in our gut to maintain them healthy so that we can be healthy. Okay. I think we're still at the early, you know, what is, what do we need to feed the bacteria right. for it to be a healthy microbiome? So, so an unfair question would be something like, so is drinking more milk or having yogurt good for you? Does it make any difference? It, it's a bit of an unfair question at this stage. Um, yes and no. I think there's pretty good evidence to suggest that if you're eating the right probiotics, which you might find in things like yogurt, um, you can help to maintain a healthy gut microbiota. But I think you need to be careful about, you know, just pulling off something from the supermarket shelf and saying, this is going to give me a healthy microbiota. Right. I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done to A, define what a healthy microbiota is and designing products that actually help maintain a healthy microbiota. Right, rather than just sell a lot. Yeah, rather than just sell a lot. <laughs> I've, I've heard on, on the media that how you're born influences your gut mic, micro um, biota. biota. Yeah. I have trouble with that phrase. Okay, <laughs> but wh- so whether if, if you have a C, whether you're born with a C-section yeah. or born naturally, um, is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And in fact, the colleague that I share an office with, Dr. Lindsay Hall, she's this is her one of her main areas of research. So definitely. So when you're born, the the diversity, the complexity of your microbiota isn't it's it's a lot less than it is as you get older and progress through life. And where you pick up your first microbiota is when you uh, transit through the birth canal. So and a lot of the bacteria that you pick as you pick up as you transit through the birth canal are things that you're going to need to be healthy early on in your life. So if you're not transiting through the birth canal because you were born by C-section, you may not be picking up the bacteria, okay. the good bacteria that you need. Um, so there's a whole area of research at the moment trying to figure out, you know, obviously not everyone can be born through the birth canal. Sometimes you have to have a C-section, for example. How can we... Um, administer to early infants uh, the bacteria that they would have normally have okay. picked right. up through the birth canal. And, and do we know the sort of things that um, might face these, these, these babies if, if they're born with a C-section? Like, I mean, do they have more allergies or, or this kind There's of thing? definitely evidence to suggest that that is true. So some of the early bacteria that you pick up are uh, early on in life are bifidobacteria and bifidobacteria, as well as other members of the microbiota, one of their main functions is to properly prime your immune system so it's functioning the way it should. Right. And a lot of the things that you just talked about are associated with an immune system that isn't functioning properly. So things like asthma, allergies, that kind of thing. So that early life, one of the roles of the early life microbiota is to set up your immune system to function properly. Right. The impression I'm getting is that 
actually it's extremely complicated and you can't just say I'm feeling a bit off today I'm going to eat a bit of this uh, drink a bit of that and I'm going to feel much less depressed or it'll sort my, out my allergies we're just not at that stage yet are we no we're not well, I think we're slowly getting there but you're right I don't think we're quite there yet okay as far as your lab specifically can you tell us a couple of the things that you've got bubbling away that you're looking at yeah, so my lab in particular. So I'm kind of new to the Institute. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to come to the Institute is because we recently became um, interested in how the microbiota regulates. So my background is cancer and angiogenesis. And we just explain what sorry, that is. Uh, hopefully everyone knows what cancer is. Uh, angiogenesis is new blood vessel growth. So how uh, blood vessels form uh, during disease, diseases such as cancer that kind of thing and you need those blood vessels for your cancer to continue to grow right um, we became interested in how the microbiota might regulate how cancer grows right um, so most of the studies we've been doing um, have been focusing around how changes in the microbiota might affect um, how we've been focusing on breast cancer but how breast cancer might develop or how it might progress in an individual and we've been kind of approaching it from two angles. So a lot of breast cancer patients will be exposed to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. What do antibiotics do? They're designed to prevent infections, right? And a lot of uh, cancer patients, breast cancer patients, will be given a dose of antibiotics before they go for their surgery or after their surgery during their treatment, uh, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, whatever. They might... Um, become immune compromised because of the treatment that they're getting so they might be given antibiotics then right. right to prevent massive infection that kind of thing and essentially what we found is that the the antibiotics kill off not only the bad guys in your gut but they can kill off the good guys as well and that's bad if you can be bad if you're a cancer patient right why is that because that that will affect uh, yeah, so that growth of blood vessels it can affect, yeah, it could potentially affect the growth of blood vessels, but it also can affect other processes that are going on in the cancer. Um, we and others actually have found that if you reduce the diversity of the microbiota, it, it can accelerate the progression of the breast cancer. So it kind of speeds up the disease, and that's not good, right? Right. But so, all this is at a very early stage, actually, yeah, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. And I'm not saying. If you're a breast cancer patient, I'm definitely not saying don't take antibiotics. They're life-saving things, right? You don't want that infection. No. <laughs> that infection, that sepsis is going to kill you. But we need to figure out, you know, what's happening. How are the antibiotics affecting the microbiota? And then how is that affecting the cancer so that we can inter therapeutically intervene, right? Come in with a treatment that prevents that from happening. That's kind of where it now, this, this is fascinating, exciting, and it, it, it feels that we are at the start of a really exciting um, period of finding out more about the human body and how this stuff can yeah. really be useful to humanity. I mean, you know, this, this is useful stuff you're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, for the first time in my scientific career, I actually feel like I'm kind of... I've always been at the very basic end of research, you know, and I could see the importance of what I was doing in the long term, you know, in the grand scheme of of science, but I kind of feel now I'm at the f the forefront of what's being done in, in uh, microbiota research, and feeling like the stuff that I'm actually doing is going to, in my lifetime, 
affect patients. Yeah. No, I, I'm not. I've, I, I need to let people know that actually, I, I've known Stephen for years, and I, I can see he is really excited about this stuff. He 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 knows this is has a very good chance of helping a lot of people. So, just with, with that in mind, if people are listening to this and they would like to find out something about this uh, that's you know not based on hype, but is just where we are at the minute, is and but is. What, what, what can they do, if, particularly if they're not a scientist and they want to read something that is, you know, makes sense to Joe Public? I think I'd point them to... So li- my colleague Lindsay has recently been doing some television programs with ITV4. Okay. And it really, they're really good at describing how early life microbiota might affect both health and disease. And I think it's a really good starting point for trying to understand what the microbiota is and what it might do. Okay. Right. And I'm not I'm not saying some of the hype is true, right? So and it's a good entry point into uh, understanding as a layperson what's going on. You need that entry point, but then delve deeper, you know, look at those those scientific based programs that are being done by BBC, ITV, ITV4, those sorts of things. And then I mean, if you're really interested in go to public outreach events, you know, we do a lot here at Quadrum Institute. Lindsay's done a lot with like Royal Society and that kind of thing where you can interface with scientists and get a better feel for what's going on. Okay, and I, I will try and make sure that there's some links to those things just mentioned on my blog. Um, also, very important, if people are listening to this and they'd like to fund what you do, or even you know if they are a scientist and, and they're working in this kind of field or they'd like to work in this field and they'd like to contact you, how can they do that? They can send me an email. and that is uh, Stephen with a PH uh, dot Robinson at Quadram so Q-U-A-D-R-A-M dot A-C dot U-K okay all right Stephen thank you very much indeed for chatting this this really is very interesting stuff so thank you thank you please do remember that if you have any questions or comments about any of the topics on this show you can Ask the questions, make the comments on my blog that's on the website, which is relaxbankuk.com. Also on that blog, there's an opportunity to enter a competition to win an active stand. An active stand is a board that you can stand on while you're working at your desk and it simulates a nice, gentle stroll. So it keeps you moving, keeps you happy, keeps you healthy. So do have a look at that. See have a look at the photos and enter the competition to try and win one for yourself. Certainly worthwhile doing that. Thank you very much to my guests on the show this week. They were Amanda Hamilton and Dr. Stephen Robinson. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.